Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. It's a lot of fun this week. I've got a mystery guest and she has achieved an awful lot in her life. She's a CEO today, but she began in a very tough upbringing, which you'll be hearing about shortly, but went through Oxford where she did law and she also got an MBA at Warwick Business School. Uh, She's done so much for the environment and for sustainability and she champions for those who are the underdogs and the people who really need a voice. And she certainly is very inspirational for me. She was recommended by Darren Moorcroft, the CEO of the Woodland Trust. So without further ado, I will let her introduce herself. Thank you, Jonathan. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. I'm Chief Executive of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, or IEMA. So IEMA is the professional organisation for everyone involved in environment and sustainability. We have nearly 18,500 members in more than 113 countries around the world, and we provide their training and development. Uh, We provide networking and an ability to get to know each other, to learn from your peers, Uh, And also, we develop the policy that our members wish to see at international, national, regional and local level. Welcome to the Inspiring Leaders podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Sarah. And it couldn't be more pertinent today, well, more than ever, the fact that you have this reach into all those different countries. And while uh, events going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and um, issues to do with the cost of living and oil prices and gas and electricity prices going up, we still more than ever need to look after the environment. So it's great having you on the series. Thank you. Um, you. I'd love to know uh, a little bit uh, about the journey that you took into your current role, and then you can tell us a bit about that. But but you had um, a journey that was particularly tough, but I think that's given you the resilience for today. But would you just share a bit about your very your very beginnings in life and what shaped you as the leader you are today, Sarah? Um, I suppose each step of the way that I've gone, um, I have thought people like me don't. <laughs> so people like me don't go to Oxford, people like me don't get an MBA or become a CEO or work at the BBC. Um, and the reason I said that is that um, I was born, my mother was a single parent for many years. Um, I am of mixed heritage. Uh, I lived in social housing for a lot of my time. Um, you know, we were not uh, by any stretch of the imagination an, an affluent family. Um, I spent, I obviously went to, to state schools for, um, and got there and got to Oxford from there. And um, I have had a lot of times where teachers or um, others, community leaders, church leaders have said, look, you know, this maybe you should think about this path rather than this path, because that's not something that happens to people like you or people like us as a, as a community. And um, I suppose 
my the kind of light bulb moment for me was when I started doing more academic work at senior school and I realized that there was a potential for me to get uh, further and the first woman in my family ever to go to university there was an opportunity for me to do um, uh, advanced education tertiary education and maybe get to Oxford or Cambridge and it was one of those open access and you know, I say you know, there's quite a lot of them now but at the time uh, there were few and far between uh, uh, programs over a, a few days to attract people from disadvantaged communities to go to Oxford and Cambridge and it was a real light bulb moment I have to say sometimes people do question the validity or the, the worth of those sort of programs for me it was I suddenly saw um, something that I had never had any contact with at all Oxford or Cambridge um, and the universities and the colleges and the, the people you had access to to learn from um, and from that moment on I thought you know if I can if I can have a a shot at this then I'm going to and it really helped me I have to say concentrate on A-levels and beyond. Well it's very interesting you say that because I was just talking to someone who's a, a master of one of the Oxbridge colleges and, and they were looking at what they their targets they've done for people from disadvantaged backgrounds and uh, from state schools and things and she was going there's still so much more that we can do um, and that's today in 2022 mm. And so it's so lovely to know that you benefited from that and look what you've done with that opportunity. And I think they should they should stretch themselves and do more. We'll talk about that later on. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about the, the BBC. It's obviously it's, it's a it's a global institution. Uh, it's under a bit of pressure itself at the moment with its license and, you know, what happens and all the digital content that's available. And very few people sort of use the BBC so much they might use iPlayer to catch up. But but now most people are, are streaming everything from Netflix. So so what was your experience of being in the BBC and what did it teach you about leadership, good and bad? Again, it's that sort of people like me, people like me in terms of uh, coming from uh, disadvantaged background. I think at, at the time I very much felt it. I certainly wasn't the only person to have um, had the background I had who worked there, but we were definitely in the minority. Um, I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I had an absolute brilliant career. I loved every minute of it. Um, I talked to people I never would have done before. I had an opportunity to, um, to, to talk about uh, issues that sometimes didn't get uh, uh, make front page news in the past. I did an awful lot of work with the Today programme and the editors there were, were brilliant because they, I, I would pitch them ideas and most of the time they'd say yes and we got to talk about biodiversity and climate change issues that weren't getting mainstream press attention at the time. But I think it's not unreasonable to say that there was at the time and probably still is now an issue around um, the sort of people who succeed at the, the BBC. And um, it, it had, you know, it, they do recognise this, they are recognising this, where there is still an awful lot of work to do, I think, to make sure that it, there is a, there all communities of the UK are adequately represented. It, in what is, whether we like it or not, and the people you know, complain and say, oh, well, it was, it was what it was, or, you know, it's still millions and millions of people get their news from the BBC. And that is changing, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, my kids use the BBC website. They, I don't think they, they've watched the news. The only time they watch the BBC news is if they're home 
and more interestingly, perhaps my parents-in-law as well, I don't think used terrestrial television at all that much. They watch Netflix, they watch YouTube, they listen to the to news on the radio. But there is that kind of double demographic going on for terrestrial mm. channels, which I have to say, if I was running them, I would be quite concerned about, to say yeah. the very least. Yeah, no, I think I think you're spot on. And and in, in your life, so many experiences have happened to you and everything teaches us something. What would you say has been a proudest moment in your life and something you learned from that proud moment? And then in your personal life or your work, what are your darkest moments and what you learned from that? Interesting. I was reflecting on, uh, on that question, which you very kindly you know, posed to me a little earlier. Um, and uh, I, was do- I did a, a, a talk for Speakers for Schools at, at a, a school. So this is a a charity that uh, works with schools that are not in particularly advantaged areas and uh, speakers go out and talk about their life and success and that sort of thing. And actually, you know, if you look at people's CVs, and you very kind of mentioned all, you know, some of the high points of my life. Um, if you look at the, those CVs, it's very easy to think, well, that's nothing like my life at all, because my life is a series of kind of greater or smaller failures and a few good things uh, every so often. And yet I, I was quite honest with myself and with the, uh, the school students and put all the failures down as well as all the successes. There's a lot more failures than there are successes. You know, I didn't do particularly well in my A-levels. I was lucky I did the Oxford entrance exam. I didn't do particularly well in my first year exams. You know, I was lucky I got a, got a degree at the end of it. And there are all sorts of things that have either, you know, been my fault or been a, I've been a victim of circumstance but those those high points and I, I suppose the reason I'm saying that is that you have to see perhaps the high points in context so the high point I think was getting to Oxford because it was kind of the sine qua non of people like me don't <laughs> people like me definitely don't do this and um, there were some very dark times you know I've had uh, I've been in uh, abusive relationships and I've had to get out quite quickly um, I had a very very dysfunctional home life uh, for a lot of my life and you know, living with the constant fear that something is going to happen there's going to be a drama or a crisis or violence or um, emotional violence which can be just as devastating for the children is is very difficult and you have to make sure that you learn from those experiences. And for me, um, I did have uh, resilience at a young age and later on in my life that I perhaps didn't realise I had in order to get through that and come out the other side. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what, what resilience you must need. And I'm really sorry that you've been through that. And, and I think uh, my wife, um, with her some different but similar experiences to you, set up the charity, the Inspire Leadership Trust for women who've been through abused, modernist slavery, trafficking, mental health issues. And there's such a need for that kind of help. Um, so you speaking at schools about your stories really resonates for me in that a friend of mine taught me how to do the alternative CV, which was the CV of all the things I didn't get into and I didn't achieve. And the fact that I tried three 
you know, I waited for three temps after staff college to get promoted to lieutenant colonel. And I didn't get promoted to any of the three of those, even though I'd come out the top 10% and thought I was God's gift, because clearly I wasn't. You know, I went to Santa's thinking I was the best thing that ever happened to them. And I was average in my report, whereas the others were excellent, whereas I always had excellent reports. And now this time I turned out to be average. But it taught me a lot of humility and humanity. And I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I'd been so successful in that. So everything, as you say, teaches you something. It's just you've got to be prepared to listen and learn and be looking for the teaching, the teachable moment, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you, you are never going to go through life without failing at something. And uh, actually, the, the, I mean, resilience, we always talk about resilience in terms of uh, resilient infrastructure as being uh, something that can uh, basically put up with the worst that the weather's going to throw in it and also recover quickly. So there are two parts to resilience, so the withstanding, whatever it is, but also the recovering. And uh, how resilient you are is very much dependent on you know, how quickly you recover. And so unless you're tested, unless you have those tests in your life, I think it's very difficult when they come along again to be able to withstand them. And I think, you know, we've seen, particularly with young people in the recent pandemic, where some of them have been under effectively under house arrest for, for two years, um, trying to learn, trying to grow and develop and you know, develop their own social networks and grow as, as human beings from their own bedrooms often often i mean i think we've seen just how difficult sometimes it is to recover from what can be a, a terrible situation that's entirely not of your own making yeah uh, and there's no doubt about it and, and and when we go back to think about you know my grandmother growing up born at the start of the actually 1899 went through the first world war through the second world war and how that impacted on their lives and then my mother uh, through the first, through the Second World War, how that impacted on her life, and how ever since then she was always saving and scrimping and making do and mend and do without. Whereas our generation, the younger generation, are going, I don't want to do with that. I want it now, and and there will be an impact for that two year of the pandemic, and and the, the there'll be further endemics as we know. It's not over. People think, oh, it's over now. It's all gone. Back to normal. No, they'll we just got to be prepared for the next one coming and how we can live with it or cope uh in a in another lockdown and and it will have an impact on them um but i think the sense of gratitude and appreciation is often missing people you know i'm uh, as i was saying to you earlier just having celebrated my 60th birthday and it, it was really a lovely occasion in which so many friends and family and people i've worked with all came together uh in one place to celebrate but it made me, and they put a lovely video of my life together with my father who was killed when I was two and a half. Uh, and, and seeing all those different events makes me very grateful for what I have now. And I think too often people are always feeling they're owed and, and society owes them and it's not fair and this isn't fair and that's fair. And, and that entitlement culture. And I think uh, entitlement comes with also with responsibility and accountability. So I'm just interested in, you talk about the younger uh, generation, those people who are listening, who have children who are 16 or 17, if you could go back and meet the younger um, Sarah Mukherjee, who, who was going through so much challenge at home, and was about to go through a lot more, what advice would you give to yourself, having been through all you've been through now, looking back with wisdom? I would say it's never as bad as you think, and it's never as good as you think. Mm. Uh, so, um, 
however badly you think it is, and and I, I you know that when you're in your late teens and early twenties, you feel things so strongly and so powerfully, and uh, I suppose. Uh, someone of that generation would say, well, it's only because you're just old and tired and <laughs> cynical that you don't feel those sort of things strongly anymore. But that, that white heat of emotion for all sorts of things, whether it's a, uh, going to a concert or your you know, first love affair or whatever it is, um, that you feel things so strongly, the best things and the worst things. And in fact, most of life is somewhere in the middle. And if you can ride both of those, then that is a, you know, is a really good, powerful foundation for a future life of happiness. Yeah, very, very nicely put. And and so we'll go, uh, uh, that leads us on to going around the Inspiring Leadership Compass that, that my wife, Lee, and I did the research into what makes high-performing leaders, um, men and women and, and their lives and the teams they have. And I'll just pick a few from that. Um, I think the one I'm interested in to begin with is PQ, uh, purpose questioned, uh, meaning and purpose. What, what's your calling, your dharma, your vocation? You've been both uh, in the BBC uh, as a journalist and an award-winning journalist, congratulations on that. Um, but also when you were studying both at Oxford at Warwick uh, and the work you've done about sustainability and the environment, you've always been passionately championing uh, really championing that's the word I was looking for couldn't come up the right word a particular cause what's your dharma and your vocation just tell us it would be quite interesting I would say um, that in environment and sustainability as in a lot of other sectors there are sometimes a lot of there's a lot of uh, very strongly held beliefs uh, sometimes with quite a kind of barren middle ground and um, being able to get people around the table. Now, I think you know, the pandemic has, in terms of uh, virtual working, and you know, I mean, look, we're talking to each other from you know, many miles away uh, and having a, a conversation that feels as if we are in the same room, but we're not. And I think sometimes that ability to actually get people in the room um, out of social media not uh, shouting or, or you know, virtually shouting at each other um, is, is a way of moving forward. Most people, once you get them around the table together, can agree, you usually find, on at least 30 to 40% of stuff. Now, I have some, from some you know, very different roles, people that raise their eyebrows. I was chief executive of the Crop Protection Association, which is agricultural chemicals. Again, that came from the same... Um, belief that there is you know, there is always something that you can find or you, could, you hope you can find in a business environment that people will be able to agree with. Now the difficult thing is to begin to work from that foundation and build a level of consensus that will actually get you somewhere. But it takes you know, it takes a lot of time. But I do think that is one thing that um, I hope my colleagues and the stakeholders would say that I do well. But I do fear that I, I, that is a process that I am. I'm good at, and I um, I'm really happy to share with. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I've, I've, uh, I'm dyslexic, so I listen to lots of audiobooks, podcasts, and things like that. And I've got fascinated by health and longevity and wellness and the microbiome and um, epigenetics and um, you know uh, glucose, a continuous glucose monitor. I'm going to get one and 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 wear one to know how foods affect me. 
But in in all the reading with various uh, functional med- medicine doctors and things, Roundup gets a really bad press for the impact it's had on our microbiome and on on our bodies. I don't know what what view you have about the, the long term impact of some of the chemicals that have been used and are continuing to be used around the world on certain foods and how that affects our bodies and our microbiomes. It's a, it's a sector I left some time ago, and so um, I'm not have not really kept abreast of the science. I mean, I would say that in terms of glyphosate, mm-hmm. um, there is a lot of low-till and min-till agriculture that uses glyphosate uh, that is uh, carbon sequestering uh, that supports biodiversity and for which there is no alternative. I mean, I know that a lot of the farmers who are working in this area of you know of, uh, of um, not not full on regenerative, but regenerative and within the regenerative family are looking for alternatives, but there are none at the moment. Um, I'd also say that there was um, uh, some work done by the Canadian regulator, uh, um, who and the the, the quote that you know, that came out was uh, they left no stone unturned in looking for um, uh, for human health effects of glyphosate, and they could not. Find any. Now, that is not saying that there are none, and you know, there is always new research coming out. But I think this is a very good example of where actually, you know, this is not an easy subject. It's not, an, and there are there are lots of people, and there are no farmers out there who want to uh, have uh, health effects on the people that they provide food for. Mm. Um, uh, similarly, the people who feel that you know, there is research out there that that there are very deleterious effects of glyphosate are very strong and passionate in their beliefs. Mm. And it's trying to navigate sometimes a very difficult path through some very complex information. Yeah, it, it really is. And um, it's like many, many times we, we do things, which years later people go, why did they do that? You know, why did doctors go on to camel adverts and they're all smoking cigarettes in their white gowns going, well, most doctors, more doctors than any, smoke camel cigarettes. And you go, I can't believe they did that. You know, we're going to have, we're going to have um, in years to come, people going, why did people eat processed foods and processed sugar and processed fruit juice? I mean, why? Because they don't know how it's going to be so damaging for them and the impact on COVID and their, their chances of death and things. It, it's fascinating. Health is the next one. Health question. What, what has been your top tips about um, your physical health and and your mental health and 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 how have you sort of coped with things when you've let yourself down and you've had to get back onto onto the you know getting your health back both physically and and brain health as well? Yeah, absolutely, it's a really interesting question. But if I may, I'll just fall back a little bit to the processed food because. Um, uh, I was on the National Food Strategy Advisory Panel, and I have to say, if you're interested in this space, I absolutely recommend the data set. You can find it online. Some of the best, one of the best data sets I've ever seen in terms of information in this space. And we must always remember, of course, you know, there are a lot of people for whom that choice is made for them rather than by them, determined by your income, by where you live, whether you have access to fresh fruit and vegetables, if it's three bus journeys away to your nearest supermarket, which will probably you know, supply a family's worth of food when you're maybe on your own, uh, then that, that isn't a real choice. That's a choice that's completely edited out of your, your control. But in terms of my own mental health, um, 
I do meditate every day. Um, I know I'm sure you've got everything, every single person who's come on this podcast has probably said the same thing, but it is, I do find that I can't sleep properly unless I've done that. If I haven't, it's just 10 minutes. You know, I just use one of these you know, apps to do it. But if I don't do that, I don't get to sleep. I wake up at four or five in the morning and then can't get to sleep. Um, Audio books are an absolute lifesaver for me in that. I mean, I, I've been working my way through endless. I mean, I just looked the other day at my library. Blimey, that is actually quite a lot of books that I have read whilst uh, whilst going to sleep. Um, I try and get a weight session in every week. Um, I try and get a yoga session every week and a couple of spin classes. Um, we walk the dog. Um, I do find that... There is something about physical exercise that, that just keeps you out of your own head. And again, back to the pandemic, going from London, um, I would always walk if I had a London day or a city day, I would always walk everywhere to basically sitting on my ever increasing behind, staring at a single point on the screen. And I looked, oh, I don't my clothes fit anymore. And uh, it was because I mean, not only it was I not getting the exercise, but I wasn't getting the kind of mental exercise as well and um it's i mean you know i'm sure that people think yeah crimea river you know you've got them and absolutely fair you know i've i'm in a very fortunate position i'm very grateful to be in a position where i can work remotely um but uh i think there is something about that commute time that kind of preparing for work ability to look out of the window of the train or listen to a book in the car and before we get into the office that we are missing now and I do think it has an effect overall in in productivity by the end of last year the team and I both all said you know we were just kind of crawling over the finish line and well, where's the 22nd get rid of the 22nd of December uh, because we were you know we were just on that verge of burnout I think you're so right and and I would recommend to you and to the listeners <clears throat> I've, one of the audio books I've just listened to is called The Glucose Revolution by, I think it's uh, Sarah Incapache. Um, she, she's French, uh, but fascinating. Uh, both the experience she went through in her life, she had a very bad accident, which really changed her life at a young age. Uh, and she wears a continuous glucose monitor. So she's not like so many people. She hasn't got type 1 or type 2 diabetes, but she's seeing, um, I think, it, what's the... Uh, the glucose goddess, I think, is her uh, her Instagram. But she sees, and she's a she's a scientist, so she's looking at the the impact of food shortly afterwards on her body and what goes on, uh, and and just fascinating things like about e eating your vegetables first and then your protein and then your carbohydrates because it produces that lattice which slows down the glucose absorption, and then we've got these continuous glucose monitors which are great bit expensive at the moment, unfortunately, but hopefully they'll become cheaper. But nobody's yet got a continuous fructose monitor. And it's the fructose and the sweet things that we're not really seeing the damaging effect of that. But the big advice is go savory for your breakfast and things like that. So I found it fascinating. And, and uh, so the glucose revolution, ha have a listen to that. Uh, I found it quite transformative. Um, let's go from health to emotional intelligence. Um, You've clearly got away with connecting with people across nationalities and different governments and different bodies, and uh, you know whether it be COP twenty six or as a journalist interviewing different people. How, how did you learn the skills, and what would be your top tip for connecting with 
with people and, and showing your emotional and social intelligence, Sarah? I thought, um, and I have been incredibly lucky. And, you know, as I said, I was incredibly lucky at the BBC. I've been incredibly lucky in my subsequent jobs to meet people from literally all over the world and uh, from lots and lots of different walks of life. And I think, actually, it's back to this, there's far more that we have in common than divides us. And yes, there are cultural differences and, and gender differences and regional differences, but actually, I mean, I, I'm, I'd be happy to be, uh, uh, to be corrected on this, but for as far as I'm aware, most societies have smiling or laughing as part of their overall uh, conversation. Most people will cry if they're sad or cry with laughter. Um, and being able to find that things that connect you, whether it's your family, your work life, your friends, your thoughts, and being able to listen. I mean, I think, um, I think we'll probably touch on this a little bit later on, but this ability not to be in broadcast mode all the time. And I, I don't think in some ways modern society helps with that. Social media is all about broadcasting. It's all about being about you and not really listening to the replies, um, but actually being able to, to listen in a way that's meaningful. And there's a couple of people, Bill Corfell, who I'm old enough to remember to have met once very, very briefly, but the, the thing that was really surprising, you know, I expected this was, you know, this is the president of the United States. Of course, he's going to be, you know, he's not, he's going to be talk, 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 talk. He listens. Actually, he listens. Al Gore listens. You know, very, very powerful people listen and respond in a way that shows that they have listened. And yeah. so just doing that, actually, um, and as a journalist, there's a, you know, it's a very, very basic selfish reason to listen because you're listening them to make sure that when someone says something that's really newsworthy you've got it and you've understood it yeah well i, I can see the skill now and we were talking about processed foods and i agree with you about what i think they call i think they call them um food deserts that people live in these parts where they can't go and get um uh, good quality vegetables uh, and, and all they're left with is the junk food shops up and down the high street but I, I'm just still so sad that there's so much money behind these big food companies, Coke and McDonald's and the others. And, and their budgets are almost bigger than the GDP of some small countries just on convincing us to eat their food, which is not going to be good for our health. And we'll end up on the NHS because we've been consuming the wrong kind of food for so long. And if only the Broccoli Growers Association had a massive multi-trillion dollar budget, then perhaps we'd be healthier people. But yeah, they, the world is run at the moment by the big food companies. Um, yeah. 10.2 million people live in food deserts in this country, according to some research. And Tim Lang, who's a food policy professor, um, uh, he did some work with a colleague uh, where they did some research into, I think it was Coke's budget. It was one of the big food, you know, food conglomerates, and it was double the budget of the World Health Organization. Yeah, yeah. So that gives you some sense of just yeah. what the quads are. Well, well, also, of course, we're relying on scientific data and research and, and studies that are done, often into exactly. mice, unfortunately not into humans, but who is backing them? 
Well, it so happens to be so, some shadow company that happens to be backed by McDonald's and Coca-Cola. And if the information they produce is not what they like, it doesn't get published. But if they like it, it does get published. So, oh, dairy is good for you. And, you know, have a burger a day. It's great for you. And then you get supersized me. But let's go on for another one. I'm, I'm off on one. Um, no, I'm, I'm completely with you on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's um, it, it, the world is run by uh, people like Putin and McDonald's. Um, CQ. Um, is cultural intelligence diversity. And, and you've talked about, you know, the, the many different uh, countries you have to deal with uh, as CEO of IEMA and um, recognizing people who are different from you. And I think you've talked about this a little already that, that everybody laughs, everybody cries, they have those connections. But, but you, you are superb at, at inclusion and diversity uh, and, and people's difference. What would be your top tip on diversity, equality, and inclusion, that you'd encourage people out there to to make it as a, a tip that they should apply as well. We, um, yes, we've set up in IEMA something called the Diverse Sustainability Initiative because, um, and this might be surprising to some people, the environment and sustainability sectors are some of the least diverse in in the UK economy. In fact, um, there's some new figures coming out, but. The, the research that we did at IEMA a few years ago, Policy Exchange, suggested it was the second least diverse. Um, and it's been quite a learning experience for me because obviously you know, I'm a person of colour. Um, I, 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 I chair our personal people of colour network within the initiative. Um, and it's, that's been quite a profound experience for me because there is nothing that connects us apart from the fact that we're not white, we're different ages, different genders, different regions, different sectors. But we've all had a similar experience at some point in our career of, a, um, of an othering. I mean, anything from direct racism to, to, to kind of othering. Um, but diversity isn't just the bit of diversity that you think it is. And we have LGBTQA plus members. Uh, we have members who are neurodiverse and with physical challenges. And um, I think sometimes it's very easy to see diversity just through your own lens and I've had a lot of learning that we've had as particularly as we've um, uh, increased uh, the focus of the initiative to other marginalized groups and what people from you know white working class communities as well um, the sort that I used to live in in Harlow um, in Essex you know that there is there's a lot of evidence to suggest now that actually if you're a white working class male your opportunities are some of the most limited in mm. in the uk and there is um we tend to think of diversity as just as just i say just of being about everybody else but you, you know, we, we it should not be beyond the wit of man in you know the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world to have every child born on a particular day having this same opportunity, the same equality of opportunity as anybody else, uh, based on their abilities and based on their uh, desire to succeed. You know, this this should not be rocket science, even though it appears to be. And so in terms of diversity, I think you know, it's very easy to, to have a target and then just tick a, tick a box. Um, it's more than just that. Uh, time after time, and I think, you know, we're, we're seeing it even in modern politics at the moment, uh, the quality of the diversity of your team is going to be that how resilient you are 
pretty much, you know, there's a direct line. The more people in your team who are going to be able to give you a different perspective or tell you that you're wrong about a, a particular thing, the more likely you are to succeed in what is an incredibly challenging uh, business environment at the moment. And you've got to walk the walk on this, not just say, oh, yes, well, we, we, we've got, you know, look how many people of colour we've got in, look how many, whatever. You've got to listen to them and then do what they say if they tell you you're not doing it right. And sometimes that is very challenging for organisations. We, we look at it through the wrong end of the telescope. We think that we're doing people a favour if we bring them into the organisation. No, they're doing us the favour by joining. Yeah. And we need to nurture them, protect them, mentor them, and make sure that they have a voice and proper agency if we're going to do this well. I, I love that. And, and the, the most inspired leaders I know believe in not only mentoring, but reverse mentoring, where they get people who are diverse and different from them and younger to them and from uh, LBGT or whatever backgrounds that are different from their own experience to learn from them and to give them reverse mentoring. Um, the, the whole um, theme of this podcast is about inspiring leadership. I was just wondering, it wasn't something I've asked you before, but what would be your definition of what inspiring leadership means to you when you meet someone and you consider them to be an inspiring leader? What are the, the perhaps top three qualities you, you've seen in them that you would call inspiring leadership? A passion. I mean, I say passion. I, I kind of slightly hesitate because... We've all sat in interviews with people who say, I'm passionate about, you know, insert your sector here. And it doesn't actually mean anything. They don't mean passion. They just mean, I want a job. Um, but genuine passion, which is um, uh, an almost unquenchable interest and uh, engagement with a particular area. I'd say a genuine desire to, to, to learn, um, and to be corrected and to in, you know, bring in as information to make proper data-led learning-inspired decisions, but also a, a genuine interest in people. Um, and, uh, I mean, I did a part of my MBA was a dissertation, and I did it on narcissistic management, which, believe me, the easiest thing in the world in a way to get data because you stand in a room and say, I'm doing a dissertation on narcissistic management. And you get about five people going, oh, I must tell you about this person. I work for a complete nightmare, you know, psychopath. Um, but uh, the, the, the people who I found most inspiring have had a genuine interest in not just their own teams, but in everyone. And will sit and listen to, the, as you said, the most junior person in the room, the most senior person in the room, equally and get something out of that conversation because you always can you know yeah. it's very I think it's I think it's very arrogant to sometimes think I mean we all see people do this as business meetings you know they're kind of checking out the most important people are you as important as me are you as important as me or well, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to ignore everybody else yeah and what are you going to learn from that encounter just well well done you're both important you know congratulations but you're not going to learn anything yeah. from that from that meeting so very true. No, beautifully put. And, and, and I have so often you've been at cocktail parties and you're with someone 
uh, well, they used to. Uh, years ago, I went to Cocktail Party. I don't, don't go them anymore. When they, when they were a thing. That's right. <laughs> but, but I was clearly not the most interesting person in the room or the most senior, not hopefully interesting, but not most senior. And so they'd be looking over your shoulder. They go, oh, oh, yeah, sorry, I've got to go. You know, there's the general. I've got to go and talk to the general over there or the Lord Mayor or whoever it might be. Um, yeah, so, so true. Yeah. Um, to go from inspiring to expiring and, and the subject of your MBA, when you've been in teams where there is the the dark triad of the psychopath narcissist combined with Machiavellian traits what is your advice and this perhaps it comes from your MBA of what people should do when they've got someone like that in the team or the team's gone that way what do you do to turn it around to make it a high-performing team get get rid of the the, the, the psychopath get rid of the psychopath or leave if you're in the, you know, if you're being managed by one, because it will never get any better. Um, it's uh, the, the, the piece of research I did was looking at, because I could never quite understand how these people just kept on rising in an organisation. So they, they came at a particular level and nothing ever stuck. You know, people would occasionally very bravely blow the whistle or go to a senior manager. And somehow that always got turned around to being, the person who's complained fault, and it was them who left, not these, you know, these nightmare people we've all worked with, who would just carry on this relentless rise to the top, and then of course they became too big to fail. Until sometimes, and we've all seen this in recent business history, they bring the company down with them. Um, and uh, what they do is they form. Well, I mean, it sounds very grand, but I call it the Praetorian Guard theory. <laughs> they they form a Praetorian Guard around themselves of different personality types. Now, and it's a kind of synergistic thing. So they rise as a kind of group up through the organisation, um, and each protects the other. So the boss protects the guard, and the guard protects the boss. Uh, and so, faced with that, you are never going to win. You know, you can either decide to, you know, just cash in your moral compass and think, well, I'll go along for the ride and get myself a nice corner office and be part of this. Um, but eventually they will get rid of you because the further on they get, the more paranoid they get and the more likely you are to be on the wrong end of that, you know, relationship. Um, or if you've got them in your team, they will break the team or they will, all the good people will go. Yeah. Go so, it's so true. And I, I see that, obviously, I see it in the Russian system. I see it in this country with the Praetorian Guard that's moved up to run our country. And um, I have seen it in different parts of different organisations I've been in where they, you go, is it me? Am I completely losing it? And then, of course, like some of the scandals that have happened at some of the good universities where people cover up and they condone uh, by, by, by being a bystander. Uh, and that lovely book, Willful Blindness by Margaret Heffernan, which is so profound about things in the NHS where people, surgeons who were incompetent and people covered up because they were this godlike figure that had trained them all. And so he must know better than me. And uh, we give power to these people. Wow. Um, we're on to the, sadly, the last uh, few moments of the, of the podcast. Firstly, uh, a book. Um, uh, and I wondered if uh, you'd recommend a, a book, which I think we have a bit of a quirky book, which is different from the usual, which uh, with lessons on leadership. And then I'll just after that, ask you to introduce yourself for the, the two minute top tip. But what book would you recommend? Um, 
So uh, I, I did think about this and I thought, well, you know, that you've, you've had some amazing inspirational leaders, as the name would suggest, on this podcast. And so they probably said all the things that I was likely to say. So instead, I thought I'd go for something a bit stranger. Um, uh, and I am a great consumer of crime fiction. All those things in my Audible library uh, are all crime books. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I listen to maybe you know, 20 a year. And um, I did stop and think the other day and think, well, why am I so interested in this? And I think there are management lessons to learn from crime fiction because it's all about motive. You know, a, a really well-written crime book, and I'm just going through the Inspector Reba series at the moment by Ian Rankin, a really well-written crime book also uncovers people's motives for doing good and doing ill. And I think as a, as a modern leader, understanding people's motives, even if it's completely outside your own experience or even your own um, acceptance of what is normal in some cases, is absolutely vital. I mean, you know, I'm sure we're all sitting there with horror looking at what's happening in Ukraine, thinking, how can this happen? How can anybody allow this to happen? Um, and yet, if you don't understand the motives, ultimately, you won't be successful. And so I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not trying to trivialize that in any way. I'm not saying that that is like modern business, but the, the, the foundation of the idea is the same, is that to, to, to succeed, you have to put yourself, it's back to this point of diversity. You have to put yourself in someone else's shoes and in somebody else's mindset in order to make yourself uh, resilient and successful. So, so true. And it was Sun Tzu two and a half thousand years ago. He says, know your enemy and know yourself when you win a hundred battles without loss. And it's the Estonian, Latvians and Lithuanians who are going, we've been telling you about his motives and what drives Putin for years, but you haven't listened to us. Will you listen to us now? So I think it is very interesting about really understanding people's motives. So thank you on that. So, so would you just introduce yourself and tell us that the, the CEO that, uh, and the role that you do? And then uh, in that two minutes, share your practical top leadership tip. Hello, I'm Sarah Mukherjee. I'm CEO of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, and we're the professional organisation for everyone involved in sustainability and the environment. So my top tip is almost like a brace of tips, if you like. Um, we talk an awful lot about our doors always being open and being willing and able to listen uh, to sometimes our most junior members of our team uh, and making sure that we stay resilient but that sometimes is a lot more difficult than it sounds because at the same time you're trying to give certainty and clarity and a clear vision for the future and so my top tip would be sometimes you see this it's very easy to see this uh, when you're a leader as a binary occupation you're either giving the clarity or you're in listening mode and you have to do both at the same time and take from one to the other because unless you do that, unless you are constantly correcting and making sure that clarity of vision is resilient and is taking everything on board, ultimately you'll end up with a clear vision, but it's a clarity that's not really going anywhere. Very nicely put. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. So Sarah Mukherjee, great to have you on the Inspiring Leadership Series and good luck with the amazing work you're doing on behalf of the planet and on behalf of international organizations. Thank you. Yeah. 
So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>